Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario has announced rapid antigen screening in schools and daycare centers for areas at highest risk of COVID-19. So, so important. What took them so long? We'll ask that question and get some answers for you. While most throne speeches are full of promises, especially during an election year, this year's document didn't offer much as being slammed by opposition critics. We'll give you some of the details on that. And yesterday's Facebook outage shows that we need antitrust action now. Edward Oswego Jr., a tech and labor journalist for Vice, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Dr. Kieran Moore, he, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer, with uh, his uh, description of the uh, Ontario rollout of rapid testing in uh, what they call hot spots in, in uh, the school system here in the province of Ontario. We want to get some feedback about this, uh, an, an announcement that was not totally unexpected. Uh, Dr. Moore had hinted about something like this a week or so ago, and uh, and this is the rollout, and uh, a number of, uh, I think, very pertinent questions being asked by some members of the media about this. I want to bring uh, uh, Ryan Imgren into the uh, conversation. Ryan, of course, is a biostatistician who has been tracking... And and analyzing uh, not just the, the coronavirus itself, but also the government's response to it. Uh, Ryan, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, are you surprised by the announcement today? I'm surprised that we gave so much attention to this announcement, and really it was an announcement of nothing is really what it was. Well, uh, the first question I think you got from one of the media types, I didn't get the name of who it was, was what took you so long? Uh, uh, in other words, if this was so important to be doing, why are they waiting until now instead of the first day of school if, in fact, this is supposed to be an effective tool? Yeah, and I think another thing, too, was the fact that, you know, it basically no provincial direction at all. He wants it for targeted schools, but there's no definition for what a targeted school is. It's fully up to the public health unit. There's nothing mandatory. It's only for the unvaccinated. I mean, really, he's just allowing the public health units to do what they want with rapid testing, which is frankly exactly what's happening right now. This was literally an announcement about nothing. Well, and the other element to this, and you just touched on it a second ago here, which I found rather surprising, is, is as you say, this is all voluntary anyway. Uh, and if the public health department doesn't feel it's necessary, that's not going to happen. Uh, if some of the parents don't want their kids to be tested, it's not going to happen. So, I mean, how effective is that actually going to be? Exactly. I mean, what we needed here is we needed a test-to-stay strategy in our schools. That's what we absolutely needed. We needed any school that has one case probably has more undetected cases, and they would meet that threshold which Dr. Kieran Moore was talking about. They'd easily reach that 100 like, cases per 100,000 people just by having one to three cases inside of the school. So by default, using that supposed definition, every school with at least one case would be, should be eligible for rapid testing, and it should be one of those mandatory things. Utah has this, and it's for any student that has been in the building in the previous 14 days. You have to test if you want to remain at school. If you don't want to test, not a problem. You're staying home for the next two weeks. That's a test-to-stay strategy. I really don't know what this is. Well, there's another element to this that you and I have talked about, and, of course, Dr. Moore didn't mention it at all. Uh, if we're going to do anything about mandatory uh, anything here, uh, why not mandatory vaccination? And we're told now that Ontario teachers are at about 80% of full vaccination. Uh, that's not good enough. I mean, when you've got you know people that are under 12, students that are under 12 that can't be vaccinated just yet, uh, I'm not... You know, I, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic here and say this is a you know, disaster waiting to happen. But if why aren't teachers 
mandated to simply say if you want to work in a classroom you're going to have to be vaccinated that's all there is to it 20 percent of them apparently are not doing it and it's not as if they don't have access to it they've just apparently chosen not to for whatever reason right and i think here's a situation where raw numbers are super important what is like 20 percent of ontario teachers that's forty thousand teachers that we have inside of classrooms right now forty thousand teachers and if you look at the average class size of about 2025 right now there's one million students here in Ontario, that are in classrooms with unvaccinated teachers. And they're in there for a prolonged period um, each and every single day. Like that, that, that scares me having that many unvaccinated teachers here in Ontario. In fact, it, it's almost at what the average is. And yet it's a like, profession that needs to be vaccinated. And it's one that supposedly has a mandate for. Well, let's be honest. There's no mandate if only 80% of the educators are actually vaccinated. And as we've talked about, uh, you know, there, there are only two reasons for exemption. One is an allergic reaction to the vaccine uh, or the, 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 the cardiac concerns that uh, the Dr. Morgan outlined today. Uh, and that's a very, very small percentage. Anybody other than that, apparently, there is no reason for them to get an exemption. Uh, and, and I think Dr. Uni made that quite clear to us on the program a week or so ago. So that, it, it begs the question, why aren't these teachers being vaccinated? And more importantly, why isn't the ministry demanding that if you want to work in the classroom, you, meet, you must be vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those easy, easy things to stop spread inside of schools. But once again, this is something that really should have been announced in like July. We should have prioritized educators for vaccination. But at the time said, you are prioritized for vaccination. You need to get your vaccination done. If it's not done by the start of September, we can't have you in the classroom. The other thing, too, which, which we can always keep in mind is that we do have remote learners as well. We could have moved some of those unvaccinated teachers to a remote learning environment teaching from home. But once again, we chose not to. So now we've got remote teachers who are teaching from home that are fully vaccinated. And we have teachers that are inside of classrooms filled in some situations with unmasked, unvaccinated students. And they're also unvaccinated. That's really, really troubling. Right, there's almost a false sense of security. I think a lot of us had uh, when the vaccine program started to roll out earlier this year. Is and, and they talked about, for instance, healthcare workers and people in long-term care facilities, etc. Uh, were going to be at the top of the list. Uh, but not all of them took the, the, the opportunity. There are still people in the healthcare field and long-term care facilities that aren't vaccinated. We have a, a home here in Hamilton. It's got one of the lowest rates in the province of Ontario. Why are these people allowed to go to work when they're not vaccinated and putting? other vulnerable people at risk and in this case we're talking about school kids right and i think it's an easy easy um you know thing to do to have mandatory vaccinations for education workers and yet that was a term that was thrown out in the throne speech yesterday that uh yesterday that we had mandatory vaccinations for, for education workers we don't because as you said we would not only have 80 percent of the population vaccinated we'd be close to what universities are seeing universities are seeing you know 99 percent and above of their student population vaccinated that looks like more of a mandate than what we have for education workers and also healthcare workers here in ontario it's it's really variations on the same thing that we've talked about for the longest time the government policies here uh, invariably seem to be half measures uh, because they i don't know who they're concerned about i don't know who they're afraid is going to push back on this but uh, as you say this is well to use the phrase a nothing burger really as far as we're concerned and i don't know that it's going to make much difference especially in light of the fact that your numbers and and i think even the ministry's numbers indicate that look at the number the, the new cases are going to go up in october november once uh, people are going to be back indoors again and that puts these students at higher risk yeah and you know what and you're right this is absolutely 
in Essingburger. I mean, I'll use, you know, Eastern uh, Latrona Public Health Unit as an example. If you look at the east side of Latrona, you've got some very, very awesome, excellent, proactive hospitals like Michael Guerin Hospital. They already have this testing program in place. They already have targeted community testing in, in uh, like place. What does this announcement do for them? Absolutely nothing. It's basically championing what is already being done in some areas. And once again, when there is no provincial directive on this as well, it's basically, this announcement was basically saying to health units, you can do what you want. Some of you are already doing it. You can keep on doing it. If you're not, we'd encourage you to, but it's up to you if you want to do it or not. That is absolutely a nothing announcement. Brian, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for jumping in today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take it easy. You too. Take it easy. Ryan Imgur, a biostatistician, has been tracking this. And I, I, I think it's disappointing, really, because you're looking for leadership here from the government, uh, especially because of uh, what Dr. Moore said about the Delta variant and the concerns. And, of course, the vaccinations for uh, students, especially under 12, may not be ready until closer to Christmas time. We don't even know that to be a fact. And in the meantime... Only 70%, well, it just, it bothers them that only 8% of teachers in schools and classrooms right now are fully vaccinated. And, uh, you know, we have to remind ourselves that, you know, even this idea about rapid testing, uh, rapid testing doesn't stop the spread. It identifies that it's there. Uh, vaccination is still the number one key, and we still, this government anyway, uh, still is very hesitant to actually go down that road. And I don't understand why. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, the uh, Ontario legislature got back to work, well, in a manner of speaking, they, the speech from the throne yesterday, uh, which is basically what a government will do uh, to try to lay the groundwork for what they want to do in the upcoming session. And it's a pretty big one since there will be an election uh, next June. Uh, so this is a pretty important session, not just for what's going to be happening vis-a-vis COVID recovery, uh, but the economic path going forward as well. But uh, for an election year, there were very few details contained in the throne speech yesterday. The document is usually that opportunity for the government to set an agenda but as Global's Dave Woodard reports, opposition members were not happy with the fact that there wasn't a whole lot of substance to it. Green Party leader Mike Schreiner didn't mince words. That had to be one of the most uninspiring throne speeches I've ever heard. The speech was seven pages long and detailed some of the spending the government's made in the last year, but little was promised going forward. NDP leader Andrea Horvath says she was disappointed there was nothing new in terms of spending for frontline health care workers. Doug Ford made it clear again. He's not here for you. You deserve better. With few new ideas in the throne speech, many wondered why the government said it needed a reset, including Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. And absolutely shocking that we had to wait this long to hear so little from someone who's been in hiding for months. Government House Leader Paul Calandra didn't comment directly on why they prorogued the legislature when they did, but said they were busy. It was a, a very long session. I think one of the longest sessions that we've we've ever had in the, in the province of Ontario. In terms of when we might hear from the Premier about the throne speech, it might be a while. Premier Ford is apparently somewhere in the northern part of the province touring health care facilities and speaking to frontline health care workers. At Queen's Park, Dave Woodard, Global News. So, uh... There will be a question period today, as, and as uh, Dave would have mentioned, the, of course, the Premier's not going to be there, but other uh, ministers are going to be there, and uh, it's going to be a rather lively session, I would imagine. So let's get some analysis about this, about what is happening here and what was announced yesterday, such as it was. Uh, pleased to welcome to the program Andrew Brander. Andrew is a senior consultant uh, with Crestview Strategies, a former, also, by the way, a former director of communication for the Ontario government. Andrew, uh, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, Bill. Pleasure to be here. 
Well, we all know that. I mean, throne speeches don't necessarily get into specifics about dollars, etc. But there's usually a, a, a career path here, here. But okay, this is what we want to do going forward. Uh, there was a lot of rhetoric there. They talked an awful lot about how you know we would. These are our dark days, and you know the people of Ontario look great, and the, some people had have really had a rough time, like people of the hospitality industry. But it was pretty short on details about what they're going to do for the people that have been suffering from this. What was uh, what was your reaction to it? To what you heard yesterday? Yeah, so I think that's right. Look, I, I, I think we have to remember the fact that there's, uh, you know, only about seven months left in, uh, in this, uh, this current uh, iteration of the Ontario legislature b- before voters go back um, to the polls. And so, I, I mean, if we're, if we're taking this at, at its face value, then a throne speech should be addressing, um, a throne speech that's given this late into the legislative session, uh, should be addressing things that the government can actually address uh, before uh, there's a broader conversation on 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 the part of all parties um, as we as we head into uh, into an election campaign. So I think this is the government uh, certainly framing um, up and and really taking a moment to uh, to pause and and acknowledge uh, the sacrifices um, that have been made. Uh, by those in uh, in the broader health community, um, those who uh, who have made sacrifices in the business community um, over over the over the past few months, and and uh, recognizing the hard work um, that that voters in Ontario, the people of Ontario, have done in terms of putting in place some of the most important things that we need to do, getting vaccinated. Um, and and uh, putting putting our our broader public health ahead of ahead of our self interests and and so in in that sense um, I think I think the government did a did a good job in terms of framing that yesterday. Yeah, they talked about where they've been and what they've done in situations like this. But uh, I, well, I mean, you know, the example that we just had here, but uh, you know, the rapid testing program uh, that Dr. Moore announced today. Uh, I, I thought there was an opportunity here for the government to, to, to go down that road and talk about school safety and things of this nature, which are things that we've talked about for months and months and months here. Uh, they didn't touch that. There was very little. I don't think the word education was even mentioned in the seven pages that uh, the lieutenant governor read. Uh, that was somewhat surprising, and there wasn't much of a plan really about uh, dealing with the people that have been hard done by through the pandemic, you know, uh, especially uh, young people in the workforce, uh, you know, people in the hospitality industry, which has been particularly hard hit. Uh, there was no plan there. They just said, yeah, you guys have really had a rough time of it. Uh, and then they turned the page and went on to something else, uh, leaving a lot of people to scratch their heads. Should there have been more specifics about here's what we can do going forward now? So the you know I I I'd, I'd say that the three biggest themes that that I took away certainly from from the speech were uh, you know a focus on on further investments in healthcare, uh, further investments in long term care, and and a further focus on on getting businesses sort of back on track. I think you're going to see a number of that uh, those measures specifically detailed in uh, the fall economic statement, which is just a few weeks away. Um, and, and, and let's recall, uh, I, I mean, on, on the schools issue, um, I, I would say that Minister Lecce, I think, made a number of announcements uh, that, that sort of happened over the summer to coincide with the start of the school year. Of course, if we were talking about making schools safe uh, four weeks into the school year, that would be a, a different communications problem for the government. Um, 
but but I think they they could have used uh, at least a bit of time in the speech to highlight some of those because those were largely overshadowed uh, overshadowed by the federal election. Um, and and so I think I think that might have been a missed opportunity. But if we're if we're to look at this a, a bit more broadly in the context of what you know what the government what the government's doing here during the federal election. Uh, the premier made a strategic decision not to engage. You'll recall up until that point, uh, the PC party was running ads attacking the prime minister uh, on the border. Um, and, you know, the need for increased health transfers, um, vaccine delivery, even on vaccine passports, something Ford fundamentally opposed. Um, he still criticized the federal government for not moving on it. Well, the prime minister won the election, so by all accounts, uh, that was the right decision. But what um, what Ford and his team saw during that time was a steady increase in the premier's approval rating, um, which which had bottomed out uh, last spring uh, when the province was dealing with the third wave. They started floating ideas about you know stopping people and asking for asking for uh, for papers in the in the streets and things like that. Um, I, I, I would say um, that, that the Premier's uh, team since then um, has, has seen this, this steady increase. And I think they have made this calculated and strategic choice um, that this is the tone you're going to see for the next session, a government that is heads down, gets the work done, and uh, makes the promises that they can actually intend to deliver on before before uh, uh, the next campaign. I'm glad you brought up the, 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 let's put this in context, the fact that we just came through a federal election. Uh, and the three main issues, I know there are a lot of them that were discussed, but the three main issues that uh, that uh, all three of the main party leaders seem to really be, I, I guess, harping on, uh, which a national child care program, the housing crisis, and, and certainly climate and the environment. And none of those things were mentioned yesterday. Those would have been easy marks. I mean, we do know, uh, at least some of us are aware of the fact that there are negotiations going on right now between uh, the Ford administration and the feds about a national child care program and and they say there's some some common ground here so that might be happening uh that that's something that they could have done. Uh, the housing situation here in Ontario is particularly bad. We, we've talked with you know the pack, people actually moving to Nova Scotia in some cases because they can't afford a house here anymore. Uh, nothing about that, just but crickets. And I thought these are lost opportunities. And these are issues that are front and center with us right now. Uh, and the government probably should have at least addressed them anyway. Oh, Bill, you need to be a bit more cynical. Come on. <laughs> what, if, if they talk about all the, all the goodies now, what on earth are they going to announce when it comes to, uh, comes to the last budget uh, that, that will be announced just, uh, just three months before the, the next election campaign? Look, I think, I think with these things, you need to, be, you need to approach these things with, with an awareness that it's, it's an election year. Uh, the premier... Uh, has has made the transition uh, over the course of the summer to dealing with uh, more directly with his team, his campaign advisors. Since then, you've seen a much more disciplined board. This is this is what sort of factors into um, not only you know his his exposure and how much he's been he's been publicly uh, available. But also feeds into this sort of broader narrative of, of uh, you know, a strategic plan that that uh, the Ford government has has not necessarily been exceptional at over the last 
uh, two years while responding um, to the pandemic. Now they have an opportunity to uh, to use this not only as a legislative reset, but as a reset uh, with the people of Ontario to say, uh, you're you're going to get uh, a government now that's that's uh, you know more disciplined in in being able to uh, share a long term vision. That's going to feed into obviously the commitments that they're going to make, um, not only in the fall economic statement, but but more importantly in in the next budget and feed into the next election campaign. And again, um, that's where. Uh, you're going to see you're going to see a lot of these longer term commitments on on some of the pieces that take a bit longer uh, than than eight, the eight months that this government has left to accomplish these types of things. I, I mean, I know a couple of I, I think it was uh, Andrea Horvath was complaining about, you know, not keeping some campaign promises. And I think the one they highlighted was actually a, a promise that Mr. Ford made uh, during the 2018 election uh, about cutting uh, income taxes uh, for the second income tax bracket. And, and you know what, I'm, I'm willing to cut some slack. And I think most people are simply because, the, you know, then the pandemic happened and everything kind of got thrown out the window. Uh, so, you know, we're in a rather precarious financial position right now. Uh, do you expect then, Andrew, that we're going to get more clarity about this? I know they did briefly touch on. On, on deficits and, and you know every government's facing a huge deficit now because of covid uh but they seem to indicate yesterday that they feel like it we're not going to have to raise taxes uh as the economy improves and and, and you know people start getting back to work uh, a lot of that stuff's going to look after itself which sounds very much like uh, the thing that justin trudeau got chastised for but saying uh, you know deficits look after themselves that that seems to be the mantra uh that not just the ford government but other provincial governments seem to be adopting right now too it's, it's a bit of a change in mindset isn't it it, it, it is a change in mindset, but I think it's also important to, to remember that, uh, you know, Doug Ford is not the, the typical cookie cutter, uh, size, uh, conservative leader. Um, and, you know, he's got a different brand, uh, something that he prides himself on, on quite a bit. Um, so, so I think a lot of, I think a lot of the responsibility around, uh, you know, fiscal hawkism, if you will, um, is, is going to come from, uh, from the Tory, uh, the more traditional Tory, uh, caucus members who will be, who will be pushing him sort of in, in that direction to live up to, to some of those, some of those commitments. But I think you're absolutely right. In large part, the last, um, the last two years really, uh, or 18 months, 19, 20 months, whatever it is now, uh, have, have in large part, um, been been responding to the crisis of the day, um, and and while I think it would have been a little bit early uh, for you know the the premier's speech yesterday to to come out be you know waving some kind of victory um, in in light of everything going on, I think there's still there's still a long road to go. Um, what the province is going to really need to hope for is that. Um, is that by March they have uh, they are in a place where they can actually frame this uh, to be a discussion about recovery uh, versus uh, again another budget and another cycle of of sort of dealing with uh, with the pandemic because uh, that is that is the greatest sort of um, barrier to to their re-election right now is is them going going to voters and saying this is this is still a real thing and we still really don't know how to deal with it uh so i i think you're seeing some of the framing around that 
uh, start to shift in terms of the way that they're, um, you know, the way that their reporting has changed on on COVID numbers uh, to to focus on ICU capacity um, and and deaths as opposed to cases. I think that's an important step. Uh, the goal has never been uh, COVID zero. I, it can't be, um, and mm-hmm. and that's why uh, I I think um, you know the more things that that the premier can put in the window in terms of uh, living with COVID um, and and being appropriate, you know, have the have the important things in place to be able to control cases um, and and uh, you know go back to the original language of flattening flattening the curve. Um, and, and maintaining those at a reasonable level, I think those uh, those will all be all be good steps in in the path to to reelection for the premier. One of the criticisms uh, that we've certainly heard about the, the premier in, in the first couple of years of the mandate, of course, is that uh, all they seem to be concerned about was the bottom line. Uh, are you getting the sense that there's a bit of a softening going on uh, from from the corner office there, Andrew? That maybe I'm, I'm not suggesting that, that Mr. Ford wants to become Bill Davis the uh, second in situations like that, or, you know, kind of a red Tory, but maybe moving it a little more to the to the middle uh, to try to gain more appeal from voters. Yeah, as I, as I, as I touched upon briefly, just, uh, just in the, in the answer before, you know, Ford doesn't subscribe to the same, the same sort of, uh, you know, foundational, um, convictions that, that a lot of conservatives, uh, conservative leaders have, have come to this job, uh, holding. And therefore, um, he's, his, his populist, sort of approach uh gives him the ability to uh to sort of make make some movements on these things and quite frankly um that's a little bit refreshing to be honest uh because you know we 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 the the tories spent a majority of the uh of the last campaign going out every day talking about how kathleen Wynne had run the largest deficit uh in in the history of the province um, and consecutively, uh, now that's going to be a record that, uh, that, that Ford has, has inherited. And, and some would say, obviously, obviously, like the, the, the conditions, um, give him, give him the ability to do so in the situation. Uh, certainly, uh, there's, there's an awareness of that. But I mean, there is no way that, you know, uh, uh, the premier with, with that kind of record can sort of, go out back out to the people of Ontario and and you know make that kind of argument against the liberals um in in the next election campaign um or quite frankly the NDP I think I think spending would have probably been in and around the same uh the same rate uh regardless um so so uh, you know I think that that's that's certainly going to be a weakness um for the premier, uh, as, as, uh, you know, how many people still vote on that, um, these, these days, how salient is, uh, our issues around the budget, um, and, uh, fiscal responsibility, uh, with voters. I'm, I'm not sure, uh, if you were to look at the results of the federal election, uh, many would probably say it's, it's lower on the list of, uh, on the list of priorities. Oh, absolutely, um, it is. Yeah, but 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 then again, we talk about uh, things that really impact the the pocketbook, right? You listed them off them off there, and we talked about 
uh, housing affordability, and we talked about ten dollars a day childcare. And so, I mean, if if those if those are issues um, that the voters are are thinking about uh, above uh, COVID response and recovery, then then perhaps um, you know there there might be a, a time where where it sort of clicks in the public psyche that hey, we've got to start paying attention again to uh, to the balance sheet. Exactly. Well, we've got to leave it there for now. We're just about out of time. I certainly will probably pick up this conversation after the uh, the financial update coming up in a few weeks. Uh, Andrew, a pleasure. Thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Andrew Brandu, of course, uh, with Crestview Strategies, former Director of Communications for the Ontario Government. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, Facebook is uh, up and running again after a massive global outage that occurred yesterday afternoon. Derek Dennis has details. It's back. Facebook apparently up and running online again after a worldwide outage that lasted more than six hours. About three billion users of not only Facebook, but Instagram and WhatsApp, also owned by Facebook, were impacted. All three online sites went down before noon after Facebook's DNS servers went offline, which meant all of its platforms stopped existing on the Internet. Facebook has not revealed a cause, but Bloomberg reports CEO Mark Zuckerberg's personal wealth fell by more than $6 billion during the outage, knocking him down to number five on the list of the world's richest people. Derek Dennis, ABC News. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's a victim, I guess. Uh, Listen, uh, this is not the end of Facebook's problems, though. Whatever happened yesterday, knocking that down, there's a terrible loss of revenue I guess they're going to have to deal with. Uh, But they've got bigger issues right now, including the fact that, uh, as we speak, uh, congressional hearings down in in Washington are are looking at Facebook right now. Uh, And, uh, well, one of the former employees of that uh, company is actually testifying right now, suggesting that uh, the Congress has to start looking at Facebook and has to start deregulating or putting some sort of sanctions against them. Uh, there's a great piece that was uh, written about this whole thing uh, in Vice. Uh, of course, uh, Edward Antwego Jr. is a tech and labor journalist for Vice. Uh, you can check out the piece. I'll give you the uh, the line for it in just a couple of seconds where you can read it for yourself. But we wanted to bring Edward on to talk about, uh, I think, some ongoing concerns to do with Facebook. Edward, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on. There has been discussion about what to do with Facebook, that it's just too big and too powerful right now. Uh, the outage aside, uh, the congressional hearings right now seem to finally be shedding some light and shining the light, I guess, on some problems that folks like you and others have been talking about for quite some time now. Yeah, I think the congressional hearing will be good and that it will allow you know, a chance for, again, you know, maybe more questions focusing on or offering an opportunity for, to ask questions about Facebook's business model and how much they prioritize profit over safety and how much harm is intertwined with it, you know, how much it exploits teenagers, how much its algorithms exploit various communities, and how much it consistently says, instead of protecting this group or one another, or some other group, uh, we are choosing to you know, generate revenue out of them, and how much that is like a very logical choice for this company because it, you know, it chooses profits, it's profits-driven. And that we should probably, you know, rethink whether or not we want a profit-driven enterprise running how we communicate with each other. Francis Huggett is the uh, former employee who's actually testifying as you and I speaking right now down in Washington. And and that, in her opening statements, I don't know if you caught part of that, but basically it was the gist of what she's saying, is that it's all about profit for Facebook. They don't care who they trample over. They don't care who is is upset about this. They don't care who they hurt as long as their, their bottom line improves right now. It's a pretty damning statement. Yeah, I mean, she's right. And I think 
um, you know, Facebook has time and time again shown that it prioritizes uh, profits over safety, and that this is, you know, partly because the the way that the company is designed, the way that it's decided to organize its uh, business model, right, requires it to, in one way or another, minimize the concerns of its users, of its workers, of the communities that are on site on it. Um, instead, choosing to grow the user base uh, and grow the sort of walls of a garden around it, whether it's in you know, the Western world or in the global South. Um, and I think that, as she says, and as she has said before, you know, there needs to be a discussion and some change that focuses on that profit-driven part. I think the question then emerges, like, do you think that, or does she think, or do we think that you can make Facebook better within a profit-driven system or that this requires a radical overhaul of the entire company. Well, and that, that was the gist of, of what uh, Ms. Hucker was talking about as well. She says, look, I love Facebook. I'm not here to destroy it. She says, I want to save it. How can you save it? I mean, what, what needs to be done here? I mean, I, from what I've seen and what I think we've, you know, and what has been reported over the years, I'm not really convinced that it can be saved. I mean, this is a company that has... You know, that was used to incite genocide. This is a company that has been the site of misinformation that has poisoned the minds of hordes of people, right? This is a site that has been a huge cha- uh, channel and back channel for misinformation about elections, about uh, COVID, about vaccinations, right? This has been a, a, a platform that has contributed significantly to suicide rates or de- suicidal ideation among teens, right? Uh, uh, body dysmorphia, it has been a site of human trafficking, drug trafficking, like all these things that Facebook in of itself would say, oh no, if we want to undermine it, are happening and necessarily so because of it being a profit-driven communications platform, right? To In, in my view of things, or in, in, you know, in some of the reporting I was talking about, or wrote about uh, yesterday, you know, I think that we can talk about making Facebook more kinder and gentler, but it has too much power, right? Um, it, uh, accumulated because it's been able to spend years inside of the global South, specifically in Africa, right? You know, you know, over 30 countries to, to try and establish itself as the Internet and the only way you get access to the Internet. You know, it doesn't really matter how much accountability and transparency you have if you're the only way to access the Internet in countries that don't have any sort of other, you know, um, alternative, and also where all the major corporations are doing partnerships with Facebook, right? And so maybe transparency, uh, transparency and accountability might reduce some of the worst outcomes, but they're not going to change the fact that there's a company that time and time again chooses to uh, establish itself as the major conduit for the internet to funnel all the traffic through it, or to try to create products that you know, like Libra, try to undermine the global financial system for its own ends. So like, this is a company that inherently, because it is a profit-driven enterprise, is always going to be looking for more. Well, and there's almost a cavalier attitude about it. Uh, there have been attempts by some other platforms uh, to try to self-regulate because of some of the criticism that they've received. Now, we can argue about how effective this is and how sincere they are, but at least they're so many seemingly going through the motions. But Zuckerberg's mm-hmm. attitude through that whole thing, basically, Edward, was, we don't care. You know, we're going to post whatever we want and, and leave it up to the to the readers to decide whether or not it's true or false. What, what which is totally contrary to what we're asking here is about you know, as you say, transparency and, and truth. They don't care if they're misleading people as long as he's making money from it. 
Yeah, uh, part of it is the principle of the thing, right? To allow, I mean, and that's also, I think, part of the reason why there's such a push for self-regulation, right? Because if you allow for regulators and for the public to extract this massive concession from the companies, this kind of unquestioned assumption we've had for the past decade or so that they know best on how to organize the digital world and how to mediate our relationship with one another in it. Um, undermining that begins to open the door for all sorts of other questions about that, uh, that threaten these companies and their business models. Why should they have, you know, private domain over uh, the way that we communicate on these platforms? Like, should they be publicly owned? Or is there a way that we can figure out that uh, public ownership that doesn't make us uncomfortable because it's owned by the government, but also makes it comfortable for us because it meets, you know, our needs as a community and allows us to talk to people in other countries, right? Without as many as possible of the negatives uh, that, the current system has, right? If instead you have self-regulation as the principle, if instead you have, we will manage it ourselves, you know, then that still gives you a lot of room to uh, act without impunity. And I think in Facebook's case, it's part, probably particularly egregious because of how large they are. I mean, in large parts of the world, yeah, you know, they are the internet. And they are, uh, they, they control some of the largest applications in the world, Instagram and WhatsApp in addition to Facebook, right, are significant swaths of how people spend their time on the internet. Undermining any part of the dominion that they claim under there is a huge threat, both to the business model and to the self-regulation schemes. It's like that old phrase, you know, why do they do this? Because they can. Uh, that's why they're mm -hmm. doing it. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's nothing to stop them at this stage. Uh, uh, let me ask you about the process that's going on in Washington right now. Uh, God bless the people in Washington and congressional hearings, and, and they're trying to explore this. Uh, if the end game here for some of those politicians uh, is, is, is regulation or some form of government oversight in situations like that, is that really a path we want to go down? You know, I think that... The, the question we need to be asking constantly, well, I think there's an assumption generally that, you know, because something that when we fix it or when we rework it, that looks like keeping the thing in a different form. But I think many instances we should be asking if we want, we really, you know, value communication. And if we really value global communication, then we should be looking at other alternatives than having one massive communications platform. And then from there, asking, okay, so if we don't want to have one, how are we going to make, how are we going to like, you know, square that circle? Do we want to have the government involved in ensuring that communication infrastructure is, uh, is a public utility so that we don't have or we try to minimize the incentives that drive Facebook? Do we want to have some vast ecosystem of private companies or do we think that would make sense? I mean, there, I think there are a lot of questions that still really haven't been asked about what type of communication system we actually want. And instead, we're, a lot of the discussion is like, is Facebook, can we make Facebook better or not? Or do we want the government in, and regulators that we may not trust or view as handling this issue poorly in the first place, we want them to step in. And really the question we have to begin with is like, what kind of communication system do we want? And does Facebook make sense in that system? Or is it, part of the problem are you confident that congress can ask the, the right questions to try to get some of those I, answers i think that we're you know getting there i think that you know for the first time you know relatively recently in the, in the past year or so especially with the leaks provided by francis uh again that you know there there's more room and there's opportunity for those questions right 
you know, I think also the conversation does need to con- to look more to how Facebook, you know, works outside of the United States because these outcomes are horrible here. But if, you know, to ask people to think how much worse it is if you're in a country where you, you need Facebook to do, you know, anything else because so much of the digital world has been migrated into its walled garden, right? Um, because I think if we look there, places where it is not holden, there's not as much regulatory authority, or where it's been hasn't gotten you know public scrutiny, we'll see what I fear might be the logical you know, conclusion of what it wants to do uh, here if it had the chance to. But but how if in fact there were going to be even a discussion about standards, how do you enforce something like that? Is, uh, can a U.S. governing body do something like that? Because this, as you mentioned, this is a global problem, not just a North American problem. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think a large, a significant part of uh, Facebook market, it's uh, in Facebook's revenue and Facebook's power, still comes from the United States, and you know, the United States could, on its own, or working together with European. Uh, antitrust uh, regulators set some basic standards that would prevent the company from operating a certain way, both in the United States and in Europe, and put pretty sharp, you know, pretty strong and bright uh, guardrails on how it would be able to operate overseas, right? I mean, part of it is like if you just cut down the company size, if you spin off these operations, and if you limit and, and shoot down programs like Free Basics or Libra consistently, and then work with other countries to create some sort of basic framework where you can't propose a system to upend the internet, or you can't propose these partnerships with telecos, or you can't propose um, a new currency, or you can't propose any sort of um, new product that is an attempting to displace or replace some other public service or good. You know, I think that that, along with regulations on the size, along with the ability for it to leverage. You know, it's it's economic power and the political power. These are just some of the reforms that need more concrete and into a framework could prevent it from operating as recklessly as it does across the world. I mean, I mean, there have to be parameters, I guess, is what a lot of folks are looking at right now. I mean, you know, large corporations, I mean, you know, if it's going to be a takeover or buyout, whatever the case might be, uh, invariably there are oversight bodies that can say you can't do that or that's illegal or that's, you know, that there are antitrust violations that are in place here. Uh, all we hear about is Facebook growing. Uh, and and the, it's, nobody's saying stop. Nobody's saying, wait, you can't do that. And I think that's maybe the discussion we need to have. Uh, and uh, your, your point's well taken, though, clearly. Their, their power base is still in in, in, in America, but are, are there discussions going on in other jurisdictions though about this, Edward? You know, in the European Union and the UK, uh, are we all on the same page about this? You know, I think that Europe is a little bit ahead of the curve on some of the antitrust um, uh, regulations or frameworks that have actually been hammered out, but that the United States has a uh, you know, greater potential here. Because the Facebook and Silicon Valley and the rest of these companies are in the United States. Rules and regulations created here, if they were more aggressive, you know, could be managed in parity in, in Europe and could have a pretty huge effect on how these companies are allowed to operate in the global south. Because we also have to remember, like, the reason that these companies, one of the reasons these companies act the way they do outside of, uh, you know, Europe and the United States is because of the power that they're able to accumulate here, the market power they're able to accumulate here and then translate that into political power elsewhere and here. So taking steps to minimize how much they can accumulate and taking steps to, uh, you know, 
disrupt their ability to translate them to political power are steps that I think are important and should be taken here and also, you know, in Europe. But I, I do think, you know, some of the antitrust regulators, you know, in the UK, in the EU itself, are, have been looking at data privacy or data protocols um, and, st- and other sorts of standards that might, you know, minimize the harm that Facebook does and some anti-competitive laws might, you know, build a case one day for breaking it out, which are all things that, you know, they need to be happening constantly. Will they be compliant? I mean, if there are regulations and if there is a consensus of what, what should be done going forward here, uh, we all know how difficult it is for something as big as Facebook to, to ask them or maybe even demand that they relinquish some of that power uh, and some of that control. Uh, are, are they going to fight this all the way down the road, or will there be some sense of compliance at some point? Yeah, there's no reason to expect that Facebook or you know, really any company outside of Silicon, coming out of Silicon Valley would accept any sort of laws or regulations that go out of their way to limit their power, right? Because, you know, the market power is one thing. The political power is also part of the value to investors, right? They can, if they apply their weight correctly, if they apply their lobbying correctly, if they apply it more, any their vast array of resources, they're able to help, you know, modify, change, deregulate uh, various industries and fields. I mean, that's a pretty valuable thing for investors. That's a pretty valuable thing for the industry. Um, so there's no reason, it's not really in their interest to accept these changes. Um, but that should not deter people from thinking about them and trying to push for them because, you know, why, why would some powerful entity willingly accept you know, limitations on its own power, right? The, the agency these companies have comes at the expense of our own agency. The only way to be gained on our front is at their expense. Well, we're watching with great interest to see what's going to be happening in Washington. Uh, the piece, by the way, is a, a fascinating piece. Uh, it's called Facebook's Outage Shows We Need Antitrust Action Now. Uh, and you can see that on uh, vice.com. You can go to that webpage and, and read the article in its fullness. Uh, Edward, a great piece. Thank you so much for this. Very timely, of course. And uh, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me on. It was great talking with you. Okay. We'll talk again soon as uh, this story continues to unfold. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.